0: let's talk shop all right so we're um we're actually back here underground at the georgia <laughs> tech archive the original recording was not good so um and i'm here with jody thompson again hey john jody hey thompson right not yes Thomas. yeah thompson And uh, explain who you are and what you do.
1: Okay. I am head of the Archives and Records Management uh, Department here in the Library Archives at Georgia Tech. And we collect and preserve Georgia Tech history, and we also have some special collections areas around architecture, science fiction, and textile mills.
0: Right. And so, and we're talking today because Georgia Tech has partnered with the Architecture and Design Center and our local AIA chapters to. Expand their archives if mm-hmm. they have it. And we have a, what do we have coming up in the next?
1: So, days? starting next Thursday on May 7th, the opening of the Peachtree Way Peachtree Street Way exhibit that will be featuring buildings on Peachtree Street.
0: Drawings and archival photographs and yes. things like that and reproductions. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the reason we're doing this is because Atlanta has a, a better tradition of architecture than people think. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that generation, or the first generation of kind of architects after the civil rights movement, are beginning to retire and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a real need to salvage a lot of um, important building
1: design mm-hmm. documents. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, how did you become an archivist? How did wh- what led you down to that? Did you grow up dreaming of being a no, archivist? no?
1: Actually, didn't know what an archivist was, but during graduate school, we went to the National Archives, and in DC. Well, actually, the southeastern region, and so it's, they're the southeastern regions okay. here in Atlanta. Okay, And so we had to do research, and then they gave us a tour and got behind-the-scenes look at archives, and then I knew that's what I wanted to do.
0: And you had a history degree before that? Or? Yes,
1: I have an undergraduate and graduate in history. Okay, so
0: that's one thing you can do with a history degree other than teach it, is you can become an archivist. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: Most people that become archivists have library degrees, but there are other routes, history, public history, things okay. like that.
0: So, uh, so how did you end up coming to Georgia Tech then? Uh,
1: there was an opening in for one of the archivist positions, and I got it. And then a couple years later, became head of the department.
0: Right, because I think, how, how old is the Georgia Tech Archive?
1: We've actually had, it's been around since like the 1940s. The, Dorothy Croslin was the head librarian here, but she was so-called the archivist, but not until really until like 2000 did we have professional archivists here.
0: So, yeah, so it was around and there was a collection, but it wasn't really...
1: They, they were keeping the collection and, and somewhat preserving it, but they weren't giving good access to researchers
0: yeah and i think that's from our previous conversation been kind of key to you also is it an archive isn't just about keeping documents is it
1: it's 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 preserving the (laughs) collection but also making them available to researchers it doesn't do you any good if, if no one knows that you exist
0: right so an archive is kind of a library but of objects in a set of books that yeah. people can go and check we out. We do have rare books. I okay. think the only
1: thing that's different is that we have papers, photographs, architectural drawings and rare books. The only thing is different that you can't check them out. Okay. So our goal is to digitize some of them, but you also take away the uniqueness of being able to hold like a 300-year-old document. So there is a give and take with that.
0: Right, right. Um, so yeah, so you came to Georgia Tech. Uh, what year was that?
1: I've been here since 2000.
0: Since 2000, mm-hmm. okay.
1: So I've seen it really grow because we were more of a traditional archives. Then we started expanding. I started getting other collections here, and we acquired the College of Architecture's archives in 2008, and that really helped us start getting momentum for the architecture collections, but we still need help getting them.
0: Okay, so before that, the, the architecture archive was separate from the rest of the archive, like the libraries, I guess? Yes,
1: it was totally different. It was at the time Dean Galloway mm-hmm. had it over at the Heffernan House on Fort, or excuse me, Fifth Street. Yeah. And so, when unfortunately, when he passed away, uh, Doug Allen knew that it needed to be in a better place, so he contacted me, and we worked out getting the collection moved to the library.
0: Okay, and so a large cl- chunk of that is actually Heffernan's work. Yes, yes. Who's a, a yes. former dean of the College of Architecture who's known for bringing modern design yes. style to Georgia Tech as mm-hmm. opposed to kind of neoclassical Beaux-Arts. Yeah, style that Pringle,
1: and like Pringle and Smith, and yeah, yeah, definitely changed.
0: Yeah, and of course, I think, and if I remember correctly, I think the dorms off of 85 um, uh, aren't much older than the College of Architecture building, or they're very contemporary with some buildings that are very different Yes, styles. so
1: they're all post-World War II. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they
0: look like from the outside. And you get inside, you can see they're both of the same era. Yes, exactly. Radically yes. different styles. And, yes. so, and Heffernan built, designed the College of Architecture and mm-hmm. a bunch of other buildings. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of his work shows up in this exhibit.
1: No, because we mainly because he's well more well known for the campus. We tried not to focus just on Georgia Tech because we thought it would be a conflict of interest <laughs> since we're the ones working on the exhibit. Yeah. So we stayed pretty much close to Peachtree.
0: Yeah, so that was that was a major effort is getting the Heffernan collection into shape and preserved.
1: Yes. Yeah, right. we're still working on it. Um, we mainly are. We've finished a lot of the collections that deal with campus just because a lot of the renovations the buildings on campus a lot of the architects needed access so that was a priority
0: so yeah so the work was pushing it um and that's part of how we got involved in this is jack Pyburn, who's an architect heard about adc and thought this was something we could do and we didn't quite understand how it fit Mm until we started talking to him but jack does a lot of preservation architecture work and he's always needing as much research documents as he can get yes yes
1: and because of jack he helped us get the daniel Um, Busby Daniels and Hova Hova yes thank you I thought I had that (laughs) (laughs) so we uh, Jack helped us get that collection so we're in the midst of getting that working on preserving that and then giving researchers access to it
0: yeah and Hova Daniels Busby then are one of those firms they've they've ceased operation the principals have retired (laughs) Henry Hova passed away Um, but they designed colony square and a Mm -hmm. lot of interesting projects and a lot of the documentation has been lost. Yes, unfortunately.
1: So we, so the Colony Square will be featured in the exhibit. So we started realizing that everything for Colony Square wasn't there. And so I think it really started helping us develop the story that we wanted to tell for the exhibit. That like you had mentioned with architects retiring, they don't see that They just see their collection as junk if someone's not buying their firm they don't see really a need to preserve it so they unfortunately throw it away and i think working with adc will be able to get the word out that it's people do want to have access to the materials
0: yeah and i guess i guess to their credit those guys are very humble guys they've done a lot of projects so they're kind of mystified by anybody wanting yes and then of course you want different documents and what we would be interested in necessarily yes so
1: that's why it's going to be great working with ADC because we'll be coming from two different v- advantage points mm-hmm. so we'll be able to work together and you can tell us what here's what I think an architect would want to look at and we can say well here's what we think campus would want and faculty and students would be looking so to mm-hmm.
0: yeah um, so that's that was one of the projects we were in these underdocumented projects mm-hmm. but the other thing I think you're referring to too is getting in earlier with architecture yes firms. exactly which is, I think, I know you've been very excited about that. That's not a very common thing where archivists start working with architects. No. And during practice, Mm -hmm. basically, Mm -hmm.
1: so. Yeah, and so we could set up retention schedules, and so when a project is no longer active, it could be transferred to the archives, because as I mentioned, collections, once they come here, they can't be checked out. Right. So we could give digital copies of the materials, but it's best just to start working on getting a schedule set up.
0: Yeah, so in theory, a project might come in that was that's being recognized in its time. Like, this is a really important project. Mm-hmm. it was uh, the, the uh, civil rights building downtown. And, of course, they need the drawings and documents during practice, and then they mm-hmm. need them for a five- to seven-year period for mm-hmm. insurance. But once they no longer have a practical use for them, the archive can take them on when the record's still safe mm-hmm. and um, relieve them of the burden of having to maintain those documents Yes. yes. and create a, some sort of understanding where they can use those Mm -hmm. printed copy documents they can access the information Mm -hmm. so it kind of becomes what we're hoping will be a win-win for firms that have important projects they want to preserve but they also don't have the manpower and if you've ever been to an architect's office and had to go down into the archive it's just yes a pile of crumpling paper. yes
1: (laughs) sometimes they don't know where things are and sometimes they do and so it's it's been it's been a learning process i think for both sides
0: yeah yeah so that's really that's really kind of exciting Mm -hmm. and it's uh Archive, I think, doesn't sound exciting to people until you really start thinking about how it relates to people. And um, I think it was Louis Sullivan, the architect, who said that he's unfortunately going to outlive most of his buildings, which is true. Yes. But the paper documents end up being, or nowadays digital documents, mm-hmm. end up being much more um, durable mm-hmm. in, in a strange way that we wouldn't think. You think concrete and brick is going to last forever. but Exactly. Uh, as we've seen in Atlanta, stuff gets torn down and moved all the time,
1: yes, yes, yes. so we've we've been having uh, we have the Neil Reed collection that mm. so a lot of it, his materials are on residence. So yeah. a lot of people are restoring their houses, so we get a lot of people wanting to see the drawings in mechanical and things like that. So that's been helpful. And I think that's a good example of how. We can help firms. Just give them examples.
0: Yeah, he had a house actually burned down in Buckhead. Recently. Yes,
1: yes, yeah. It was um, actually um, on, I think it was on Lowell Water or somewhere in. Yeah. In in town.
0: Yeah. So and he he was I guess I can, we're talking the early twentieth century when he mm-hmm. was working mm-hmm. classical neoclassical yes. architecture. I think mm-hmm. he did the train station off of Peachtree Street. Is that Neil Reed?
1: That's Pringle and Smith.
0: Oh, that's Pringle mm-hmm. Smith. Okay. Br- Brookwood Station. Brookwood yeah, Station. That's yeah, that's Pringle Smith. Okay. But
1: very similar. So. Yeah,
0: those are all the Neil Reed and and Pringle Smith. Everybody kind of sometimes says, well, that's just a Shuttsey. Like, every kind of? Yes. You see a exactly. Building, it's yes. Philip yeah. Schutze, yes. Who did the Swan Building? Um, so really, even going back to the early twentieth century, Atlanta has some very interesting architects working in it, and it mm-hmm. really has taken off in the later half of of, of the uh, of the century. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens in the future. Yes. It's getting more and more, <laughs> yeah. more and more. And you're gonna be really busy because I think architects are getting much more busy working. So putting together this exhibit, we've if you've, you, you've partnered with some other organizations also.
1: So we've also, as you mentioned with AIA, the Atlanta and the Georgia chapter, they've been helping us. Mm-hmm. And then we've also worked with some of the other archives here in town, like the Bremen Museum and the Atlanta History Center. And then some of the firms like Portman's firms have loaned mm. us materials for the exhibit
0: so yeah there are archives all over and i think sometimes we're hoping also that the relationship between aia and adc and georgia tech helps make that a little bit mm-hmm. easier too to, to mm-hmm. coordinate and pull together these exhibits because what we're interested in is obviously the archiving but mm-hmm. then adc promoting what's yes, in the archive exactly raise a profile of it so it gets more support and also so it gets um more use Mm -hmm.
1: and I don't think that necessarily do the materials have to come to Georgia Tech I think it's also a way that I can show that firms can also start their own archives and I think Portman's a perfect example they they have their own archives so I don't I think there there's two options that people that some of the firms can do
0: yeah and I think that's been some some partners have been difficult to understand the kind of flexibility that Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's that mission of having an archive and having access to it Mm -hmm. that's what's really interested in preserving Mm -hmm. and than reading the document.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, so you've got a lot going on. So the the exhibit's opening, and the uh, the theme of the exhibit is the Peachtree Way because it's focusing on buildings along Peachtree Street. Yes, I think the kind of sub the sub theme of it was also um, what we had, what information we've lost already, and we don't have, and that we need to get back and support mm-hmm. the archive. Mm-hmm.
1: And then it also shows what buildings still exist. So there aren't that many. Okay. And yeah. so we've uh, set it up in different grid areas, starting from on Peachtree Street, starting at at uh, Marietta Street, and go th- going all the way up to Brookwood.
0: Right, right. So yeah, kind of downtown, midtown mm-hmm. area. Yeah. And we were actually joking about it when we were going through it. That we could have done a, a lot. We could do what's on Peachtree now. We could have done a lost Peachtree. We yes. We could do a, pr- a Peachtree that never was. Yes. Yeah. So
1: part two to the exhibit. Yeah. D- a dozen <laughs>
0: different ideas for for Peachtree Street. Um, it was a nice organizing idea that kind of mm-hmm. helped us pull pull together various par- pieces. So, um, and it's opening.
1: The exhibit opens on May seventh. Okay. And it's running through the twenty seventh at the Stubbins Gallery in the College of Architecture. Okay. Um,
0: and that's not all you have going on, obviously. You also are all in the middle of a major moving process. And yes, process. yes. So
1: the archives is um, ha- doing a collaboration with Emory University and having a joint storage facility. Right. So that will be on their Briarcliff campus. And then that's that opens in November of this year. And then the, arch- or the library's two buildings will be renovated starting, hopefully, in the spring of 2016.
0: Those are the big ones right up on top of the hill.
1: Yes, Crosland and Gilbert. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and actually, and since we, we're talking about where new storage will be for the archive, the existing archive that most people probably have never noticed is goes underground. Yes,
1: yes. Unfortunately, we're underground. So we will be moving temporarily to the Gilbert Library, one of the library's buildings. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, once the two buildings are renovated, the library will have its own reading room and and out of the basement.
0: Right. So you're, you're tucked in behind, kind of between the, the new architecture annex and. Mm-hmm in the Crosland Tower. Crosland Tower. So
1: people will now once we move people will now be able to find us a little yeah. bit easier.
0: <laughs> how many how many stories down does this building go? Is it just the one or
1: Well, t- if you come from our main entrance, we're just well, we're just one floor down. Okay.
0: So, not completely under.
1: No, we're not. So there's a sub-basement in the library, so we're not we're one floor above that.
0: So you don't know that it's raining out right now.
1: Then, no, you? no, you can actually have be a tornado on <laughs> campus, <laughs> and we'd be would, safe no. down here. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: guess that's kind of the point. Yeah. <laughs> that covers pretty much all that. What are you really excited about this archive? Then, I mean, it's you've you've been multiple times. You've used that word in the process
1: with the with the ADC and AIA. Yeah, just expanding the archive. Yeah, definitely. Together. I think just bringing first off bringing attention to how important it is to preserve the yeah. firm's collections. And then just, I think, then also seeing researchers come in and using the materials.
0: Yeah, and I think from our side, we've always, we want to promote good architecture in the city in general, but also promote the good architecture and design work that's been done already. Mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency in the city to want to look to the outside for good design and good designers. Yes. Not recognize the heritage we have here. Mm -hmm. I think When you start speaking, when we did an interview with John Busby and Stanley Daniels, um with architects that have a longer anybody has a longer history with atlanta you start to realize there are a lot more mm-hmm. interesting buildings around here than we we kind of give them credit for
1: yes yes um, learned a lot about just working on this exhibit
0: yeah and the, the colony square project is kind of a great example mm-hmm. it's this weird it was a mixed-use project some people complain about the in- urbanism today but it's one of the first ones ever done mm-hmm. and it's got this weird kind of um Mall structure at the bottom, and in, plugged in all these buildings, which is kind of a super maddest. I mean, there's mm. there's some good ideas there that are really interesting that we probably overlook a lot. So, mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's good. Okay. You good? Yeah. All right. Okay. In town say hi, Jack. Good morning. Good morning, Jack is an architect. Uh, he does think exclusively historic renovation work. Historic preservation. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we're, uh, we always do, we start with a little bio- biography. So how did you first get interested in architecture?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. I'm, honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> um, I, um, I would say part of it probably was driven by being a little dyslexic.
0: Not, not a great <laughs> w- reader and wordsmith.
2: <laughs> and um, so I think I was always attracted to the visual. I had no real um, architectural or, for that matter, aesthetic sort of exposure as a kid, very little. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? Uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. But I uh, grew up in the midst of uh, some very interesting architecture, particularly modern architecture.
0: In Shreveport?
2: Uh, in Shreveport. I was not I aware that uh, there was a lot of A them. modernist who was doing um, international-style work in the before the war. Had uh, gone to Europe and seen it, came back, and, in Shre- and North Louisiana was building this modern style. Oh, building. wow. Um, I used to get my newspapers in the, the back door of a very modern grocery store. <laughs> and uh, so I sort of I feel I got a little bit of it by osmosis and um, I'd say the other piece was uh, my dad was a, a drilling contractor for oil in North Louisiana okay. and um, I spent a lot of time in sort of vernacular rural environments and really uh, it became part of me and so the combination of those things I think, um, were major influences on what what I was drawn to mm-hmm. and um, knew when I went to college that I wanted to study architecture
0: yeah so you and and you went to Texas A&M for right. school and you practiced architecture and right. I think played on the football team that's right which seems like quite a time well command. you
2: know you do what you got to do and yeah he <laughs> <I, you laughs> was kibitzing in the studio and I was had to get my work done and be ready to practice uh, so basically work my way through college That's what I uh,
0: so yeah, so the yeah, scholarship was important for you to be yeah. able to afford yeah. um, and how did you end up after college then you said you grew up with modern architecture influencing you but you ended up uh, moving towards historic preservation
2: well I um, actually I um, you know I had uh, graduated from my um, five-year professional degree, I'd never been in an architect's office because I'd been playing football and training and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I figured I needed some experience. So um, by that time, I was in Miami. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked a couple of years for two firms there and knew I needed then to go back to school and have some focus time on mm-hmm. architecture. So I went to Washington University and got a master's in urban design.
0: Washington University in St. Louis. Louis right. Okay, and you were, and I recall you were also playing professional football. Right, in Miami. so I got my
2: fifth year of architecture in two springs while I played. Okay. for Miami in the fall.
0: So you were very busy in your well, 18s you know, and 20s. I certainly was
2: juggling both. But I had a lot of support, a lot of good uh, folks that helped me mm-hmm. do that. Okay, and um, uh, so I went to St. Louis and uh, got a degree in urban design, and really did urban planning for. Ten years after I finished my urban design program. Oh, wow. Didn't practice architecture. But I did do preservation planning. And as so part of the I, urban as design? As part of the urban design work in a lot of historic districts in St. Louis.
0: And so it an, so an early kind of Main Street program, kind of say Well, it was, you know, or... St.
2: Louis had some very established historic districts by that time. Okay. And uh, so it really was um, dealing within the context of, of uh, what, what was significant and how do you deal with it and how do you deal yeah. with uh, historic materials and assemblies and those sorts of things.
0: And what time period are we talking about?
2: This would have been in the 70s. Okay. I went to St. Louis in 70 and uh, left in 81. Okay, that's what a guest. Um, so, um, you know, that's where I sort of got introduced formally to preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Then when I came to St. Louis, I mean, when I came to Atlanta, I came to Atlanta to um, be a part of the Edo office. And Of course, I was an architect. Edo's landscape-based primarily. But it was my planning and urban design work
0: that brought me here. Yeah, I mean, urban design and kind of a, a joining point between landscape right, and architecture. Right. So.
2: Um, and I did that for four years, and then I opened my own office. And um, at that point, I then started to gravitate back to architecture i say sometimes that i i started with buildings that existed because they were standing and i having been away from structures for so long it was a more comforting
0: place to start (laughs) you didn't have to worry (laughs) about the building still standing we just have to make sure it stops crumbling and leaking
2: Uh, but in the course of that i found preservation and really uh, saw that it made all the things that made me who i was come together and um And really developed a passion for it and and have enjoyed it. It's been a great career.
0: Yeah and um, maybe talk a little bit about the difference between preservation and historic uh, renovation and adaptive reuse. Well
2: I would say there's not a real um, difference. I mean you're either um, working with it or you're not. You're sort of working in the dark or you're working from a position of being informed and a set of values. So um i think there there's a notion about there some things are not as important and so you take more uh, leeway with them i think it's uh, being deeply informed about a building tells you what the framework is for design for design so not sort of just a superficial um, uh, judgment about well this is not significant because Really any individual, not the one who makes that determination it's sort of the research and the understanding of the building that informs that
0: right um, so um, building's pretty buildings are pretty um, kind of collectively owned in a way you can't yeah not exactly can't, I, yeah. you
2: know and I, I think honestly that um, in in preservation projects there, you really have two clients you have the building because it's deemed some way Socially, community-wise, it has got some meaning. Yeah, and you've got the owner, and how do you how do you bring those two together? Many times the two are together, and so that's not a a question. In some cases, and it's generally more in institutional settings where the um, the owner's a collective, a different collective group. Right, and um, it's how do you how do you mediate those two and bring them together?
0: Right, and so the building because of its historic fabric is making demands on you that may not necessarily always be in keeping with what the owner is saying. Not yeah, well,
2: I, I think the owners, the owners, certainly, programmatically looking to the future and what the right. needs are, and the building's telling you what's important from the past to bring into the future. And so, how do you, how do you bring those two together to uh, bring an enriched future? Is um, is kind of the way I.
0: At it. So it sounds like with your work with, with existing buildings, it's not so much the end product that's different. Like you're not always necessarily recreating exactly what was there, but it's beginning with a really intensive study of what's there and then trying to do something sensitive.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good observation. Um, you're, you're not trying to create. You, you're, everything's done in the present. So the buildings in the present, whatever you get of it is is here. Yeah. And so the question is, how do you um, take what's here that's from the past and extend its life? There's certainly, I think, a tremendously valid sustainability aspect to that. Mm -hmm. So how do you extend the life cycle of of, um, embodied energy that's already been committed?
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah.
2: And then how do you, and generally, the way you do that is you use the techniques the way it was built. You know, there are all kinds of unintended consequences when you start introducing new techniques into old systems.
0: And I've seen that too, where the project I was working on, where somebody had done an insensitive renovation and it was tearing apart the existing fabric, the shifting of materials and stuff like that. Um, I mean, a good example is is mortar.
2: Um, People generally think, well, the harder the mortar in a brick wall, the longer it's going to last, the less you have to Mm -hmm. repoint it. Well, the mortar is intended to be the sacrificial piece in a wall. Mm -hmm. And um, if the mortar doesn't give when the wall moves, then the brick's going to break. And so those are the kinds of things that people think, well, new is better and harder is better. And when in fact, in this case, understanding the material and assembly.
0: Right, and older bricks are softer too because of the right. firing method. Right. But that's interesting. But to in think any of. case, the, the is
2: whatever the strength of the brick is. The mortar's always got to be softer. Yeah,
0: it's like know. it's a little bit like well, anytime you have two materials coming together, like a window and a wall, right. it's gonna leak. I was right. talking earlier about my right. wife being a building engineer, envelope engineer, and you put in the flashing, you put in the sealant, but eventually it has to be replaced. Right. And that's, that's right. And so, I mean, your right. buildings that's have a, those that's things. It's called maintenance. It's <laughs> called maintenance, and so a lot of. <laughs> a lot of buildings fail because of, of, maintenance. Lack of maintenance that's a lot of what we do is uh, deferred maintenance so <laughs> they in the rumor around i've always heard around lord x sergeant is about jack Piper and studio the group of people you work with is that people have always mentioned they have a, they have a microscope on their desk <laughs> as architects
2: well we do have a conservation lab and mm-hmm. um um actually it's fairly new we've had we've had a microscope around for a long time but but have not used it nearly as extensively as we do now. We have a conservator on staff, and uh, so we do our own paint analysis and mortar analysis so we can tell what the strength is, what the color is. Mm -hmm. We can study um, cross-sections of paint history and determine when uh, different colors were used at different times. Things that help us to correlate physical conditions with historical information.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of technical research to figure out you're looking at the brick and the grout to figure out exactly what that is and what it can stand yeah, up to. Yeah,
2: I would say that's the, that's the sort of the design piece of, of preservation, and then how do you put that design piece of preservation with the design piece of future program? And that becomes preservation design in my, in my description.
0: So, yeah, the next piece is designing those the actual physical elements for that future use you're talking about right. that is in that keeping with wanna, the design. You want to
2: capture the fabric
0: that exists – Right. and
2: incorporate that and use that as inspiration for how you do something of today's time for the future.
0: Yeah, so how often, and I'm going to add to this, because usually there's kind of two extremes in design where you either match-match what's there or you completely conflict, contrast with what's, what's yeah. there, the idea being, well, if, if it's different, then we can separate the two time periods out because buildings are kind of non Yeah, let me say
2: that it, it really the, the pre- prevailing notion about design is that every, what you do ought to be of its time. So if it's fabric that's coming forward, it ought to be of its time in the past. What you do to introduce something, there can be varying degrees of of differentiation. Mm -hmm. But basically what you want the viewer, the person experiencing the building to do, is to be able to subliminally understand or consciously see that this is of this time and this is of another time, so that you can read what is of the other time and understand what is of the other time, and you can also understand what's of the present. So yeah. there's a design, there's a um, uh, sometimes not so subtle, sometimes subtle. Uh, but generally, always, we seek to have a differentiation so that yeah. it's representing what is of today and what's of the past.
0: Yeah, and I think that's—we sometimes think of historic restoration as taking it back to the original condition, right. but buildings are non-temporal. So if right. you go to—it um, always blows me away when you go to Monticello, and they're like, this building is not at all what Thomas Jefferson lived in. Like, he was right. always designing and redesigning right. it, and that's right. kind of the final thing. Right. And that's the intellectual honesty challenge you deal right. with a lot is a building's non temporal, it's got pieces of time yeah. from all over the place. So I need to be Well, there are, true two to that ways to, there are two
2: ways to consider a historic building one is about around a point in time, it's either related to an event. Or a person, Something or some, some, or a time it was built, and you know, right. and going back to that period, or it's related to some aspect of its collective history. And in the right. case of the Jefferson experience, because he changed it over time, it was that collective history that became important, not right. necessarily just when Thomas Jefferson did the first thing on the building. And so that's how you structure that intellectual framework right. in which to both both maintain, improve, and interpret. Uh,
0: So there's almost a a story or sometimes we say narrative and Mm -hmm. we want to say less story that you're choosing to tell by what you put into the building and you're trying to be as kind of didactic and as clear as you can with somebody else who comes in and they read the building like a text almost. Right.
2: And I think the other piece of that story is that is the story of of our time. Mm -hmm. But future generations will have different stories and they'll read the buildings differently. And so what you what's very important is to save that fabric,
1: to preserve yeah. that
2: fabric so future generations have their opportunity to interpret it in their time and leave it for for their future generations.
0: Yeah, and I think it drives home a point too that um what you're doing now is just a moment in time. Right. And what happened before was just a moment in time right. and acting in the spirit of that knowing that one day you're going to be part of The history that somebody else is going to be renovating that building. It won't be there forever. It's all temporal. Um, So this work of yours has actually led you to, obviously, in the Atlanta area. And what brought you to Atlanta? Edole. Oh, that's right. Edole. I said that. Um, To have a lot of uh, contact with a lot of old buildings that are in bad shape. um, That has led to an interest in historic not historic preservation, but in archiving, because I suppose you've actually had yeah. well, a huge of course need for it.
2: We are, are, um, one of the main uh, valuable resources in dealing with an old building is having as much documentation about it as possible. So if you have the original drawings and documentation of when it was done, mm-hmm. um, and not to mean, as well as campaigns uh, between that point when it was designed and the present, then... The more you have to understand the building, know how it was put together, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, so, our, having those available are, are, are important records. And uh, of course, we have the uh, Historic American Building Survey, which is a part of the Library of Congress, which is intended to do just that for buildings that didn't have documentation. And it um, creates documentation for existing documentation. historic buildings. Exactly. Okay. Um, And there's one for the engineering record, and there's one for landscape. So those are all in the Library of Congress. And um, that's um, kind of the main spot where where documentation is sort of formally organized. And um, as you know, we've been um, working with the Georgia Tech Archives to try to develop some kind of regional, at least state, local, but hopefully regional, Archive that can be that place that people can go and and find uh, a wealth of documentation, either from researching a, a point in time in history in, in a more general way, or a specific building. So.
0: Right, and so that and that's something that's been kind of a passion of yours for years. I think the, the Georgia Tech Archive and there's some other archives in town, like the Atlanta History mm-hmm. Center, right, um, don't necessarily have a systematic way of identifying things worthy of being archived, and so they rely a lot, like people like you who are out and about and call right. in and say, I, I found right. this guy right. or his daughter. Well,
2: you know, it, it, it's a very interesting psychology, architecture mm-hmm. is. And um, architects generally are, um, have sort of possession of the project while they're designing it. And it's their baby, Yeah, collectively or individually, however it gets done. And when the project is finished mm-hmm. and they turn it over to the owner and they've lost that control, it's no longer, you know, it's sort of viewed as no longer their baby anymore. It's, you never uh, go back you, in you after it after you don't uh, have the same relationship with it. Yeah, you don't have. To and wait. I yeah. think that uh, translates to, or transfers to how they deal with their records. It's you know those were all old projects, and you know when you get older, you start to get sort of reminiscent about them, and you go back and you think about them. Mm-hmm. But. Um, the architects at a very different spot and the project was done at a different time and a different set of conditions yeah. and, and um, But very often um, Unfortunately people get the end of their career and they say gee these nobody wants these things these are all just you know working I remember all the Mistakes <laughs> well and drudge it went through and you know it's just a bunch of papers over there and uh, in fact, it's very uh, valuable stuff it
0: is. Um, and what one of the things Georgia Tech is interested in, the archivist, is not just the drawings that we're proud of, like the great rendering drawing you did or something, but they're also interested in the process drawings. Mm-hmm. Because it's an archive, according to Jody over at Georgia Tech, is, is a library where researchers will come and look at it and right. they want to be able to understand the story of the project. It's like, right. why in this early rendering is there a balcony here and the balcony moves over there? Right. It. So they're interested in documents that I think a lot of architects would be surprised that that's what you're yeah. interested no, in. no, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the program we're working on, which kind of yeah. came to us through David Green, who had some time here at Lord X. Archer, said, Jack Parburn's working on this thing. And the idea is to help maintain that control of the documents, yeah, as you and mentioned. Yeah, find,
2: find folks who, who have been keeping them all these years and paying for storage and uh, don't know what to do next mm-hmm. with them and um, hopefully get, get them into um, into the archive that people can have access to.
0: Yeah, working with AIA Atlanta and AIA Georgia to move those documents from having to pay to keep them up, right. but also to the archivist where they can mm-hmm. preserve them, exactly. too. Um, so we think it could be a great yeah, win-win yeah, for everybody.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh,
0: yeah, so we really hope it takes off. It's going to yeah. be one of the first programs in the country of this type where the archivist and the architects are working almost in real time as much yeah. as you can with also accompanying for your liability insurance yeah um so but before we let you go i just wanted to um ask some broader questions sure. and see what your thoughts are because one of the things we've always struggled with is kind of what is design you know we, we want to advocate for good design mm-hmm. so you begin with well, what's design and it ends up Something a lot of people you kind of know, but they've not really thought about articulating. So what do, you, what do no. you think design is? Well,
2: it's a it's a timely question. In fact, we're putting on a, um, a workshop for the AIA convention on preservation mm-hmm. and design, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. And um, I would say one of the uh, better descriptions I've found that resonates for me is one that uh, I learned from. Um, a very important architect named Bob Geddes. Bob was a dean at Princeton for a number of years and was yeah. the um, principal in Geddes Brecker Qualls in Cunningham in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And um, he said design was produced by informed intuition. And I would say informed intuition applied to a process. But I really like the informed intuition piece because um, at the end of the day, either as a collective team or as an individual, you only bring what's in your own head and, and experience and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the, how you inform the breadth of that information and the diversity of that information is um, an essential ingredient to quality design. And I think that's where the preservation or the, the history and cultural piece has oftentimes been left out of education and therefore out of one's development of their own intuition. Mm-hmm. And um, the lack of value, that set of values, as one considers the context in which they're designing, um, becomes a bit stunted because of that lack of, um, of uh, Exposure and, and training and development. So um, that, that's uh, for me. Those are um, sort of constructs that uh, resonate with me about how to um, produce a, produce quality design. Yeah.
0: So the informed part there might be, and based off the conversation we've had so far, there's, there's a big part of study there of informing Absolutely. yourself. Absolutely. Of what the project is, instead of just jumping in and start drawing Absolutely. lines on paper. It's a deep
2: dive into the mm-hmm. research, and, and that can be research in sustainability. Um, you know, when we deal with, I would this is a bit of an aside maybe, but a good example, um, we've found that the technology, uh, the techniques of analysis in sustainability, the modeling particularly, have been extremely valuable in making good preservation decisions. One would think, gee, the sustainability objectives are going to crush the building. But in fact, what it's given us is the understanding of how the building was designed to function in the first place, which everybody sort of assumed was bad or good or inefficient or whatever. And it gave us the actual information in which to do that, to understand how that building uh, performed. And um, and make better preservation decisions, then we can make sustainability decisions in the context of how that building's performing, and we can find ways to achieve sustainability objectives, knowing how where the building's strong, where right. it's weak. And yeah. So um, again, it goes back to being informed in a, in a deeper way, in a variety of places, and and what your values are going into the project.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess an illustration of that would be, you know, today's buildings are designed to be airtight. And before, I uh, was probably going back to the 60s and 70s when that started, when mechanical air conditioning started, mm-hmm. they were designed to breathe, and there have been problems in some historic buildings when you install a new HVAC system with materials beginning to crumble and mold beginning to build up because yep. of the, the wall no longer right. functioning. I would think that would yep. be a kind of thing that well, you Well, know I mean, about.
2: any uh, time you make that kind of, uh, any kind of a transition from being uh, unconditioned to conditioned, you have... You'd certainly have a change in atmosphere and and, Mm -hmm. uh, environment, and uh, materials do respond to that, so you have to do it in a way that um, uh, can maintain some degree of of, um, relationship to the way it originally functioned,
0: uh, humanity-wise or otherwise. I guess there's one more question. Then what? I guess there could be two. But why does design kind of matter, and what kind of role does it play in building uh, our world? Well, I,
2: I mean, I think it, it's what what architects get up in the morning for, for the most part. Um, yeah. And um, I think it matters because it um, it is the the word that I think translates into quality of life and quality of experience and and. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's one that in, in some spheres is, in ways, is, is connected to one's endorphins. Yeah. And um, and it, it creates um, interest in um, um, meaning and excitement and all kinds of things. So, um, it's a really uh, wonderful sphere and, um, uh, you know, one of my, um, my own positions is that, that preservation is design and a lot of people think preservation's over there and designs over here and get the preservation out of the way preservation is design and you're working with a building and you're working with all of the architectural characteristics of it and you're making good decisions about that piece of architecture that's design.
0: i think that kind of deep kind of getting to the substance of the stuff that we're working with as our challenge is the kind of thing that's probably made you successful in that Career and have the reputation you you have for historic preservation work around the city and state. So well,
2: it's it's um, it's it's been it is fun and um, and it's very interesting. Every building and you're dealing with preservation in some way. Every building is special,
1: mm-hmm. and every
2: building has its own history, even though it may have similar materials and it'll have different assemblies and different characteristics. So. Uh, The uniqueness of it and being able to take this deep dive into its past and understand it uh, and how to bring it into the future is is really a fascinating sphere of architecture.
0: Well, great. Well, thanks, Jack. We're going to wrap it up with that. Okay, Okay. thanks.